0: Welcome to the 16th installment of the Phenotips speaker series. If you're new to the webinar series, then we're happy that you've joined us the first time, Uh, and a warm welcome to those who are returning and tune in regularly. I'm your host, Dr. Pavel Buchkovich. I'm the Chief Operating Officer and VP of Scientific and Medical Affairs at Phenotips, a software and service that makes genetic professionals workflows easy and intuitive and incorporates features such as pedigree drawing, standardized symptom capture using the human phenotype ontology, and insights such as differential diagnosis and gene suggestions. Since electronic health records aren't built for genetics, Phenotips fills the gaps by providing a complete suite for genetic medicine. In light of the pandemic, Phenotypes is sponsoring this speaker series. The format of the webinar today will be a 45-minute presentation followed by questions from the audience until the top of the hour. You'll be able to submit your questions throughout the presentation in Zoom's Q&A box. Our speaker today is Dr. Anna Cohen. She is an ABMGG certified laboratory geneticist, focusing on the analysis and interpretation of genomic variants uh, detection among pediatric rare disease patients. Dr. Cohen received her PhD from the University of British Columbia focused on the power of deep phenotyping and described the first two patients with embryonic ectoderm development related overgrowth, also known as Cohen-Gibson syndrome. Dr. Cohen is an assistant professor of pathology at the University of Missouri, Kansas City School of Medicine and an associate director of molecular genetics at Children's Mercy in Kansas City. As part of the Genomic Answers for Kids research program, at Children's Mercy Research Institute in Kansas City, Dr. Cohen is currently investigating additional strategies for diagnostic success in rare diseases. The title of today's presentation is Children's Mercy on Ending Diagnostic Odysseys. The stage is yours, please take it away.
1: Thank you so much for that kind introduction and to everyone listening, wherever you might be, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Thank you for joining us. So I'm very excited today to share with you um, the work that we're doing here at the Children's Mercy Research Institute, and particularly within our program, Genomic Answers for Kids. Um, And of course, we will be highlighting how Phenotips has been helping uh, do this work. And um, I will start, uh, given that um, a lot of you might not be familiar with our center, giving you a little bit of an overview of where we are. And so um, the Children's Mercy uh, Hospital is uh, an expert um, in pediatric care for the uh, wide region that covers Kansas, Missouri, and also neighboring states. Um, It is a nonprofit independent children's hospital that has been around for uh, a while since 1897. It has almost 8,000 employees And it has over 40 pediatric subspecialty areas with uh, almost 800 specialists. Uh, Of course, many nurses, allied health professionals and a very large number of volunteers as well. They are uh, at the highest level for pediatric trauma uh, care and of course also for neonatal intensive care. And they are um, repeatedly ranked amongst the best children's hospitals in the country. Um, These are just sort of an overview of what the health system was seeing, and bear in mind, of course, these are pre-COVID numbers, Uh, so if uh, we didn't have a pandemic, this is sort of the uh, volume that the hospital was seeing, with over 400,000 outpatient visits a year, um, over 200,000 ER uh, or um, inpatient visits, Um, And um, really, as I mentioned, it's a big hub uh, for all the uh, pediatric care in the region. And if you don't know where Kansas City is, uh, I will show you here because I myself didn't know before I came here and it's smack right in the middle of the United States, as you can see. And also to add some um, little peculiarity, it sits Kansas City, the city uh, sits right um, at the border between Kansas State and Missouri State and actually part of the city is on one state and the other is on another part. And um, the hospital system is actually um, divided in multiple regional centers and uh, with a star here you can see uh, Adele Hall, which is the main campus, which is where we are located. But there are centers uh, in other regions that are trying to serve the pediatric populations that are not close to the the main um, hospital. And we are very lucky because just uh, in late uh, 2020, um, the hospital um, opens their brand new research tower. Uh, which is where we are now currently doing our awesome work. And I just wanted to share that uh, if you look at the research tower at night, you can actually see um, these different patterns of lights, which are purposefully um, constructed to symbolize um, what used to be sequencing gels back in the day. So when they used to uh, do Sanger sequencing manually, and then uh, run that on gels to find out the sequence. Um, and these actually represent four patients who, had, um, who got answers for their uh, medical care through sequencing at Children's Mercy. So now a little bit about what our program is doing. So what is genomic answers for kids? So this is uh, really a massive undertaking led by Dr. Tomi Pastinen um, here at Children's Mercy, and it is meant to be the first of its kind pediatric data repository um, that really uh, wants to facilitate the search for answers and novel treatments for all pediatric disorders. And um, our goal is to collect um, data and health information for 30,000 children and their families over uh, seven years. Uh, So eventually having a database of nearly 100,000 genomes. Why are we working on rare diseases? So um, there are at this time over 6,700 genetic inherited diseases um, that have been characterized Uh, They affect one in 30 children in the United States alone, which causes one in six children's hospital admissions and one in five infant deaths. Um, And the diagnostic testing that um, is currently offered uh, and has sort of become the standard of care is symptom-driven clinical exome sequencing, but it only resolves about 25 to 35% of cases. And so a lot of these children remain without an answer to what is causing them sick, which is often um, really important to guide their care. As I mentioned, uh, the goal is to eventually have um, 30,000 patients recruited and 100,000 genomes, and this is where we are to date. So we're over 3,000 patients, which together with their family members that have joined the study, we're at over 8,000. That's um, over 5,700 exomes, uh, almost 3,000 short read genomes. And another thing that we are doing and innovating in this way is we're at over 750 long read genomes, uh, high fidelity, which we um, have established a partnership with PacBio to do this. And it's really um, showing really promising results as um, I will mention later in the talk, so this might look like somewhat of an overwhelming figure. Um, don't worry. You don't need to um, fully um, understand every part of it. But really, what I'm sh- sharing this with you for is to show that we are um, sort of attacking this um, quest to diagnose our patients from multiple different directions. and. Um, the first column on the left here represents that we're actually using different sequencing strategies. Um, so, as I mentioned in the previous slide, um, we're still doing exome sequencing, which is uh, considered the standard uh, sequencing method for these patients, but we have explored multiple methods of genome sequencing as well. And of course, a lot of our efforts go into Making sure that we are looking at the correct ver- variation in this sequencing. So, um, controlling for technical noise uh, and artifacts, and making sure we're filtering against uh, anything that would be highly common in the wider population, where we make use, of course, of the huge efforts in public databases that are out there. And um, then we need to filter further with clinical information to figure out which rare variation um, detected in these patients might actually be giving us a clue to what is making that specific patient sick and for that um, we incorporate a lot of information including of course um, inheritance pattern so meaning uh, is there a family history what do we expect um, this disorder Um, to be, is it something completely new? Was it inherited from a family member? Um, And that would point us towards a mechanism of disease that could be um, autosomal dominant, autosomal recessive, or X-linked, for example. We have also explored some um, computational tools that help prioritize amongst the the rare variants for each patient. Um, And specifically, we've used two tools, that are publicly available and they're called Eximizer and Emily. And these tools, what they do is they take um, the basic characteristics of the variant as well as explore a lot of the phenotypes that are annotated for the patients. And uh, I will explore more of what that means. Um, And combining all this information it helps sort of give a score to what the most likely rare variant might be for the patients and all of this is of course a very large undertaking and it involves a lot of people and we have um assembled uh data on the first 1083 patients um and we described the strategy in detail in this paper uh it is the preprint is available now uh, at uh, med archive as you see here, and you can see the large uh, author list represents just how large of an undertaking this is and the teamwork involved. And um, it is it should be uh, available online um, within about a month as it has been accepted for, uh, by genetics and medicine as well. So I, um, if you are wanting to know more about our strategy and exactly how we've, um, how we've explored the different sequencing methods, as as well as these um, computational tools to help us prioritize variants, I highly uh, recommend you have a look at this. Now, one very important thing that I wanted to mention is um, part of our program is that we have a commitment to data sharing. So of course, all information is de-identified and you cannot link it back to the patient Uh, However, we find that it's really important to share this with the wider community, because this is really uh, how we believe uh, we can get to faster diagnosis um, by joining forces with other groups around the world. And as I mentioned, we um, have explored a lot of sequencing uh, through through PacBio with high fidelity genome sequencing, and we have um, We have used our study to um, understand what variation coming out of this sequencing might be noise versus real variation. And after all that filtering, uh, we have curated uh, a list of recurrent variants and their frequencies um, from uh, over 1,000 alleles. And this is publicly available so that other groups that are doing the same sequencing method may um, Check their results against ours. Now, as I mentioned earlier, and um, this is uh, exactly where um, phenotypes comes into play, when we are trying to solve um, these diagnostic cases, it is really important to collect additional data. So it is great to have multiple sequencing strategies, but of course we um we can't really do anything without sequencing without having the additional data so the two main things to collect are personal and family history and these are best captured in pedigrees um so really it's a family tree that is annotated uh, as to who is affected when um what features they have and then to annotate those features um we Collect detailed phenotypic information. Um, we have a very clinically diverse cohort, so we, we really have a very broad recruitment uh, of accepting any child that has any disorder that affects any part of their body that is uh, suspected to be of genetic origin. And um, because of this diversity and because of how broad the recruitment is, it is really imperative that we have some sort of universal coding for these phenotypic features, and that's where HPO terms come into play. And I expect most of you to be familiar, but just in case you aren't, um, HPO terms stand for um, human phenotype ontology. These were developed to have a standard vocabulary of these phenotypic abnormalities seen in human disease. They currently have over 13,000 terms that have been annotated and over 156,000 annotations to inherited um, human diseases. Each term independently uh, describes a clinical abnormality, and the term can be really general, sort of just saying there's an abnormality of the head, or it can be really specific whereas that abnormality is actually macrocephaly due to hydrocephalus, for example. And uh, what makes this really special is that it's not a simple um, system where you, you would say, for example, uh, abnormality of the head, and then within it, there's the option of macrocephaly, which is large head. Um, actually, macrocephaly can link back to abnormality of the heads, or it could link back to overgrowth. So each term can actually be related to multiple parent terms. So it's really a wide net um, that connects all this vocabulary. So as I was saying, uh, for this specific example, we have a phenotypic abnormality um, that happens to affect uh, head and neck. And then within that, it's affecting specifically the head, and then it's affecting specifically the skull size. Um, And then within the skull size, you can think undergrowth or overgrowth. And then for overgrowth, which is macrocephaly, there's multiple types. And why is this so important? So even um, if you're thinking macrocephaly seems very straightforward, but really when you look at the synonyms here, um, you can see there's multiple ways of saying that someone has a large head. And so this was uh, really what led um, this group um, to recognize that there needs to be a standardized way to make sure everyone is saying the same thing in the same manner. And as I mentioned, uh, it's not only the actual phenotypes that are annotated. Um, Each of these phenotypes is then associated with diseases and uh, genes. And if you see here, the term macrocephaly is, is linked to over 500 disease associations and over 400 gene associations. So, again, thinking of that very wide network that, that keeps getting wider, um, this is really a way, that, a very powerful way to annotate um, the features in these patients and to also pull information that will link to the genetic data. So, what does this look like, and how does um, phenotypes help us? Well, phenotypes, uh, which um, I just took a screenshot for one of our patients, is helping us pull all of this together in a way that is integrated and easy to use for everyone. And not just that, it can actually be, um, it, it supports the, the idea that this is done as by a team. So, for example, at the top, um, you can have any of our recruitment team uh, fill out the patient identifiers and basic information on the patient. Then we can have um, a clinical um, expert uh, fill out the indication for referral and phenotypic features for different um, individuals in the family, as well as, of course, our a very powerful tool to draw the pedigree for the family, um, which is extremely helpful. And you can annotate each of the patients individually for what features they have. And um, all of this, of course, um, is connected with um, HPO terms that are coding those features, as well as it can all be connected with genotype information. And for the genotype information, one step further um, is that you can annotate whether um, this is truly like a causative um, variant that you have found or if it's just a candidate variant um, and what what is the suspicion. And this can be annotated in multiple ways. And again, this part is typically populated by the expert analysts, um, but it's really um, a teamwork. And Another um, aspect that we really like um, that just shows how easy phenotypes is to use is a lot of our patients, of course, um, are seen in the clinic and might undergo uh, clinical testing first before uh, deciding whether to enroll in our research program. And um, a large part of the clinical team also uses phenotypes to capture the the clinical features and the family history, and then that can easily be transferred over to our uh, research um, repository, which is really smooth and makes everyone's lives easier um, to capture all this information. So if I were to um, focus in here, just to really show how um, much detail um, you can get, you can really annotate all the different family links, and you can um, annotate whether they're affected or unaffected. When you click on each of these, you would see the specific features um, and you can add notes manually as well for each individual. And one additional layer um, that is great is that all of All of this that I've just shown you are screenshots for what we are using internally. Um, But again, going back to our commitment to data sharing, we have managed to um, create um, a web uh, cloud hosted uh, version of our studies phenotypes that is completely de-identified but still captures all the phenotypic information and the pedigrees and the rare variants that are associated with those so that we can share with the wider research community. And we are really excited about this because we feel that, um, as I mentioned before, sharing um, genetic variation is great, but without the context of where that variation was discovered, it is not um, as applicable to others. And we really hope that this sharing will help accelerate Uh, more diagnosis for our patients by having um, additional researchers uh, recognize similar uh, combinations of uh, genes and features in their own cohorts. So I hope I was able to give you sort of an overview of uh, what we're doing and how phenotypes is helpful. And now I'm actually gonna switch uh, to give you some case presentations for uh, some of the diagnostic odysseys that we were able to solve. So I'll start with patient one. Um, This was a um, patient that had had an uncomplicated pregnancy and was delivered at 39 weeks gestation by C-section due to macrosomia, which is a large um, head as well. Evaluation at seven months showed macrosomia, macrocephaly, difficulty feeding, uh, ventricular septal defect, um, developmental delay, dysmorphic features, and global hypotonia. Family history in this case was remarkable for a sister that had a similar history. Interestingly, she was older, and she was doing pretty well at six years old. The original testing for this um, this family had been uh, undertaken in 2018 and was negative with no compelling variant, uh, not even variant of uncertain significance. So here we have a pedigree of the family and as I mentioned um, when you click on each uh, node you can see exactly which features are assigned to each individual and you will see On the left here is the patient that I was introducing, um, annotated with the different features. And you can see on the right here at the bottom is his affected sister, which actually had a few more features, but the primary features um, are matching to her brother. And if you notice as well, if you look up, um, dad is also noted to have macrocephaly and uh, pectus abnormality. So, as I mentioned, um, they had received clinical testing in 2018, and it had been negative. Um, When redoing analysis um, within the um, context of the Genomic for Kids program, we actually came across this interesting variant. It is um, highlighted here in the center. It is a frameshift variant, meaning that it introduces um, a nucleotide and causes a shift in uh, the reading frame and um, changes what the protein is from that point o- onwards. And this frameshift uh, occurs in this gene ZBTB7A. Um, and you can see as well um, that it is present in the proband um it is present in dad and the affected sibling but is absent in mom so it is tracking with family history. You can see that this uh, change is happening in exon 2 but exon 1 was not coding uh, so it's really the first coding exon and it's actually a um, relatively small gene. Um, this gene was not described in uh, OMIM as a known disease gene. So OMIM uh, is a great rep- repository of information for that. Um, the variant, this variant specifically, was completely absent from population databases. And this gene um, is constrained against variation. And for us to say that, uh, we use the um, NOMAD databases, database constraint scores where they, they look at the gene and they calculate Um, based on the size alone, how many of these different types of variants would you be expected uh, to see based on um, just random um, mutation rate, and then whether you're seeing more or less variation than expected. And here you can see the scores. Um, The the PLI at the bottom um, typically associates with loss of function variance, which is what we have here with a frame shift, and the score goes from zero to one, and we're very close to one, um, showing very high constraint with only one loss of function described in the general population. It is also um, constrained against missense variation, as you can see with the z-score that is very high here. And then, of course, the question is, Is there clinical significance to this finding? And we also use another um, resource called HGMD, which catalogs a lot of the variants that have been described uh, in the gene. And in looking here, we are seeing this one entry with a paper from um, 2020 in uh, in an individual with microcephaly intellectual disability and sleep apnea. So of course, this looked very interesting. And looking at that paper, uh, we can see that they actually had a de novo variant in a patient with these features. And um, in addition to that, they actually pulled a lot of cases, so 25 cases, from the literature that had shown a deletion that um, overlapped with the locus where this um, gene is. And you can see here um, the gene is right in the middle of this diagram. Um, and this gene is deleted in, in all of these patients. And so um, they collected the different features that are seen in this patient and all the microdeletions. And I have um, highlighted in yellow here, all the features that also overlap with what we're seeing in our patient. So it was, of course, looking extremely compelling um, evidence. And again, a reminder, This paper was online late 2019, so well after our clinical analysis had taken place. This was further supported by additional patients within the Decipher database um, with both uh, deletions here uh, listed on the left, as well as um, some uh, de novo small variants uh, from the uh, DDD project. and this was very compelling. So as part, again, of our um, data sharing efforts and collaboration uh, within uh, the rare disease community, we, um, we added this gene as a, a strong candidate um, into a website called GeneMatcher, which is um, intended to connect researchers and physicians that have um, a single patient with a rare disorder with other patients. And here is the link. This is the web link to GeneMatcher. Um, and through this, we were actually able to find additional cases um, led by uh, Dr. Von Der Loop, um, And we were able to uh, recently publish this finding. Um, and in this publication, we actually had uh, a total of 12 new cases that have variants within this gene and overlapping uh, features, which of course includes um, all the features that I had previously described in our patient, and this was um, a really exciting finding. And this is, of course, what we are hoping to achieve uh, with all of our unsolved patients. So. This is an example of where we found a strong candidate um, and were able to collaborate with others to find an answer. Um, The next patient I would like to present is actually a patient that we were able to solve by um, the addition of um, other technologies. So here we have a proband with uh, failure to, to thrive, hypotonia, persistent global developmental delays and epilepsy and family history was uh, completely negative. Um, I just wanted to mention that this pedigree is also for from phenotypes and you can actually extract um, a beautiful figure like this from phenotypes, which is very helpful. Um, and so for this patient, we actually um, did not see this through um, the standard Exome sequencing, but when you do genome sequencing, which has uninterrupted coverage, you can clearly see at the top here that the proband has a dip in coverage, which is consistent with a deletion of this gene, CACNA1A. Um, this deletion uh, covers three exons um, and is absent in. Uh, mom, and it's consistent with a diagnosis of autosomal dominant neurodevelopmental disorder and epileptic encephalopathy. So this was um, a really uh, good one as well that we had, um, and we were able to provide answers to the clinical team. Another example of what um, of a another successful story uh, was patient three. Uh, This patient was actually diagnosed prenatally uh, with hepatosplenomegaly, and this persisted after birth. Um, There was a liver biopsy done at six weeks that was concerning for multiple abnormalities. The um, initial clinical uh, testing revealed a single pathogenic variant in the gene NPC1, and this gene is known to be associated with Niemann-Pick disease, type C. However, we only had this one variant, uh, and this is an autosomal recessive disorder, so we would really expect two variants, and also to add complexity to the analysis, we did not have parental parental samples available. Given this uh, finding, uh, there was a biochemical testing done, um, so they measured specifically oxysterol, um, and this was abnormal. So this establishes the clinical diagnosis of Niemann-Pick disease, um, but, and and it really allows the clinical team to start interventions right away, but the um, patient remained without a molecular answer. Through our research study, we were able to find a second uh, pathogenic variant that happened to be intronic um, and Um, As I mentioned before, we actually did not have uh, parental samples, so typically you would want to show the one is maternally derived and the other uh, variant is paternally derived to confirm that they're on opposite alleles, but in the absence of that, um, we are actually able to use the high fidelity long long read um, genome sequencing from PacBio to show that each of these variants is actually on a different allele. So with that, we were um, able to to completely um, give a molecular answer to this kiddo as well. And this has implications, of course, not just for for the child itself, but for the family in, uh, for example, planning for future pregnancies um, and understanding their recurrent risks. Finally, this is actually the last example I will present today, Um, Patient 4 was a program that presented with a concern for skeletal dysplasia and completely negative family history. Um, He presented with overall uh, shortening of the limbs, a short neck without webbing, and some digital anomalies, and he had had a clinical genome in 2016 that had been negative, and Um, because he already had a genome, um, it was decided on on our research study, we would pursue the the long read um, PacBio high fidelity sequencing. In doing so, we actually detected um, an interesting variant. So just to situate you here, um, you see that there's four panels actually, and it repeats proband mother, proband mother. This is just because um, the top two panels represent the um, long reads genome sequencing and the top bottom ones represent short read sequencing. Um, and in both of them, you are seeing this variant that appears to be um, homozygous in the proband and heterozygous in mom. And this variant uh, is actually changing the start codon of this gene, uh, b 3 galt 6 now um, you may ask or be wondering, oh, but we are seeing this in the genome sequencing. How come? Um, well, we—I I will get to that uh, soon. But just to touch on the clinical um, um, relevance of this variant, we have seen there have been other variants at the start codon for this gene that are uh, associated with. Um, some sort of skeletal dysplasia that seems to be variable, but it would be consistent with the presentation for this kiddo. So um, really, I just want to take a moment um, and go back to my slide and uh, point out something um, that is not uh, always thought of. But um, this analysis was done with the human build 38, which is um, what we are using for a research study constantly. Um, and going back to the data that we had previously, which was build 37, there's actually um, a, a gap in coverage here. There's very, very low coverage even the top panel here is uh, genome sequencing for this proband. And you can see very little coverage. But you do see two reads here with the arrow. And they, they do show the variant there. Um, but with two reads, this would have been discarded as not um, compelling um, variation. And also at the bottom here, you can see MOM as well as two other controls with exome sequencing, this, this part of the um, the exon for this gene is completely not covered. Um, so this was abs- this was not detectable uh, with Bill 37. When we uh, looked further at why this may happen, um, it actually showed up um, as a known uh, problematic region, which is difficult to align. Um, and this was actually captured by ENCODE Um, in sort of what they call their blacklist, which represents um, regions where the genome assembly um, is um, causing errors. um, And we are not seeing the coverage that we are hoping and can miss variation. And again, this is not um, something that might pop to to the top of the list as something to keep in mind, but it is something that um, is really important as well. And um, as expected, this alignment issue uh, was corrected in build 38, which is why we were able to see that variant come through in our analysis. Um, nonetheless, just to point out that um, exome sequencing will still have a gap in coverage at, at, in this region, but with genome sequencing um, with build 38, this would be ca- captured. And so, Um, we were able to provide an answer to this kid that had been waiting a long time since um, that genome in 2016. So with that, I hope um, I was able to illustrate um, how we are incorporating a lot of information um, and uh, how helpful phenotypes has been in uh, us reaching Gnostic answers for some of our kids. Um, and the, I hope that our, the examples I presented today were able to illustrate different ways that we are getting at those answers. As I mentioned earlier, this involves a very large number of people, um, which starts, of course, with the patients and the families that are agreeing to participate in the study. And we are so grateful for their participation. The Genomic Answers for Kids core team, um, which um, really works uh, in all directions from um, the technology to the recruitment to the analysis and everything in between. The clinical teams are referring um, these patients and informing them of our study as well of course, our collaboration with PACBio, and last but not least, in any way, our collaboration with Phineal and how helpful they have been in supporting our endeavors. I'd like to thank everyone involved and I'd like to thank you for listening. And I am um, happy to address any questions. And I also just wanna leave um, here my um, direct work email address. In case you have any questions, you're also welcome to contact me directly.
0: Thank you so much for the presentation, Anna. That was, that was really, really interesting. I'm sure uh, we will have a few questions coming in from the audience already, so um, we'll jump into those briefly. I actually have a few uh, questions as well. Could you, could you maybe talk a little bit more about what the inclusion criteria were for patients to participate in the study?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, so we are keeping the um, criteria really broad on purpose. We do not um, want to exclude anyone that could benefit from the study, Um, but also, as I mentioned, this is sort of um, an effort that goes beyond just each patient um, individually. We are creating uh, a large, uh, we are concentrating a large amount of data that is going to help other patients within the study, but also Beyond the study. So that's only
0: so criteria, quality. Uh,
1: uh, excuse me?
0: Oh, sorry. I think there might have been a there might have been a, a sort of a gap there in the internet for a second. Please continue.
1: Um so I was just saying typically The proband will be someone that is um, 18 or younger and that has any constellation of phenotypic traits that are suspected to be of genetic origin. And then, of course, as we recruit the the patient that is typically uh, pediatric, we might um, recruit additional family members. So um, that would include adults that are affected within those families as well.
0: Thank you. Um, I also wanted to ask, do you know or have any insights as to sort of across this patient cohort, what were the sort of average number of phenotypes per patient, uh, and did that have any impact? And also, would you happen to have any information about the quality of the phenotyping or some of the clinical and family history uh, information, and whether there was any correlation there to uh, to the outcomes of the study?
1: Yes, that is a great question, and it's... um... It, it is somewhat complex. So as I mentioned earlier, when we were um, looking at HPO terms, um, there's different ranges of uh, terms and there's different specificity of the terms. So if we include a term like abnormality of the head, that is, of course, going to encompass a lot more people than if we uh, include a term that is macrocephaly, that's already a lot less, but it's still really broad. So depending what, how specific the terms are, um, it might um, overlap more patients within our study. We did, however, try to look at um, whether numbers correlated with diagnostic um, outcome and throughout um, the different sort of buckets. So if we were to divide those with a clear diagnosis, those with a um, that we have a candidate for, um, but we're we're not quite there yet and those that we really have no um clue of what might be causing their symptoms for all of them the um the average number of HPO terms that we end up with are between six and seven um and we're not seeing any correlation between the number the, just the number and the outcome um I will say we also, because of the sheer number of people we have involved in the study, uh, how that information is captured is also variable um, based on who is doing it. It could be anyone from, you know, the recruitment team, or it could be the expert, this morphologist, that saw the patient in clinic, uh, and we're also not seeing a correlation there um, mm-hmm. that is, that would be at least significant in, in A way that we could say that there's specific, you know, numbers or combinations to use that would more likely give you a diagnosis.
0: Mm -hmm. So we have some questions from the audience. Um, We have a question asking um, Would the 19, I guess, chromosome 19, 13.3 deletion be picked up by microarray?
1: Um, A deletion of that region, um, I would. I would imagine that many of those would. Um, and given um, the literature review that they did in that specific paper, um, it is clear that some of them would. I I cannot tell you the exact resolution of how small of a deletion in that region would be picked up by microarray, because I haven't myself looked. Um, so it, it really will depend on the um, size of the deletion. But some of them would, for sure.
0: Mm-hmm. We have another question here. What what has surprised you in sequencing the first five to six thousand participants? Were certain types of variants more common than others?
1: That is a wow. That is a question I haven't heard before, but uh, I appreciate it. And um, it is not easy to address that question simply because um, I. Me and um, the other people um, that are doing the analysis, we typically start the analysis on a patient-by-patient basis. Um, and so uh, when you're zooming in on a patient, you're really looking at what variation that specific patient has. And that is that appears to be pretty constant. Um, with, of course, the caveat that um, if you uh, remember earlier, we are filtering against uh, common variation that's in public databases. So we do see a very large difference uh, in number of variants that are um, considered rare depending on the ethnicity of the patient given that some ethnicities are very underrepresented in um, in these populations. However, I would like to say Uh, From um, specifically our long reads uh, genome data, we are seeing um, some structural variation um, that was perhaps previously underappreciated given um, just the fact that most of the sequencing is done with short reads technology. Um, And we did try to address some of this in our paper um, by specifically focusing on the variation that was inherited. Um, so if we were seeing it in the probant and in one of the parents, uh, we believe that it was likely a true signal rather than just a you know noise from the sequencing or from the analysis um, be, due to the lack of you know public resources for such um, types of data. Uh, we are seeing that there are, structural variants there that um, we have not been capturing in the past and will probably require a lot of investigation and might provide some of the answers that we are missing.
0: Mm. Thank you for that. We have another question from the audience. Uh, How impactful was the collection of family history? Did it improve analysis in most cases?
1: Oh, um, so family history is really critical and it, it is. I feel it. It's one of the um, oldest <laughs> uh, things that have uh, shown to be powerful in in establishing a genetic, um, you know, a genetic origin of disease. Um, from you know the oldest days of uh, genetic descriptions and papers um, up to now, um, the family history really helps us both include and exclude variants. Um, so if we have a variant that looks really compelling, but it's not segregating with the phenotype within a family, um, it becomes less compelling, not necessarily excluded, um, because then, of course, we have to consider other variables, including uh, penetrance and expressivity, which means you know the correlation, whether having the variant necessarily means you have the phenotype. There are complexities like that, but um, family history and specifically the larger the family um, that we recruit, the better it is um, for um, giving us the, the causal variant. Uh, with that, just wanted to add as well that um, for a lot of these rare disorders, it has been shown that uh, there is a very high rate of what we call the novel variants. So it's a brand new variation um, that occurs in just a patient. And so for that, um, knowing that both parents are unaffected and having you know just a child with both parents, that's already a very very powerful um, way to do our analysis.
0: Mm. Thank you for that. Um... We have another question from the audience, from Michelle Fox. Since this is a research project, do the patients identified need to have findings confirmed in a clinical lab to take advantage of treatment, management, or clinical trials?
1: Yes, absolutely. So that is a very important question. I thank you for bringing that up. So um, we actually have our research study um, and the research lab sits directly next to the clinical lab. And the workflow that we have set up is that anything that is um, discovered on the research side and is found to be of clinical significance. um, And for that, we use the American College of Medical Genetics guidelines to determine clinical significance. Um, Anything that is of clinical significance is then confirmed by an orthogonal method in the clinical lab and is reported um, into their, you know, their clinical chart so that the physicians can act on those results.
0: And then another audience member has actually asked Do you have access to the whole written medical record or just the HPO codes for each patient? And I guess that potentially plays into what you spoke about before about the clinical team at, at uh, Children's Mercy also recording some of that data directly in phenotypes.
1: Yes. Um, Absolutely. It absolutely ties together. Um, So the the vast majority of patients enrolled in genomic answer for kids are children that are seen within the Children's Mercy Health System. And for those, we do have access to their complete chart. And we try our best to um, summarize that with the accurate HPO terms. However, we will go back to the chart if there is novel variation that seems um, potentially interesting but the, is not an exact match to what uh, the HPO's terms are describing. Um, and so we do go that one step further to look at the chart. Um, and as I did mention in uh, earlier, um, if for those physicians and uh, other clinical members that are using phenotypes to record that information, we are able to just carry through um, and transfer to the research side. Uh, We are working with all subspecialties within the hospital. So um, not all subspecialties are using phenotypes, but specifically genetics. Um, They have really embraced using phenotypes. Um, However, we do have patients that are enrolled in our study uh, through other collaborations that are not within Children's Mercy. So for those, we get a mixed bag. Um, It could be anything from a detailed clinical letter uh, to just a very few HPO terms.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, We have another question from the audience. So Francis uh, Sansbury is asking, good to hear your perspective regarding ZBT v 7 a would you like to say more about using Decipher, GeneMatcher, Matchmaker Exchange for finding similar cases? Are you depositing your variants as opposed to genes of interest into one of those databases?
1: So um, that is a great question that touches upon how important all these resources are. Um, We are currently only uh, depositing the genes themselves into gene matter. We have, um, last time we checked, we had over 160 uh, genes in gene matter from our study. Uh, I bet it's more now. Um, But we're also we are also sharing those genes through our, this, this public phenotypes interface we have. However, um, I will say we are very quick to share what the variant is and with specific information about the transcript whenever we are communicating through these channels. Um, and we have found that that is important sometimes to um, clarify we're talking about you know the same um, transcript of the gene, um, and specifically uh, that there is phenotypic overlap between the patients um, to share the variants. My personal um, feedback that I've gotten from these collaborations is that knowing the variant uh, ahead of time has not been particularly helpful, but I could be wrong, and that could change. Um, However, I think the success of GeneMatcher has proven that just sharing through the gene um, can get you really far.
0: Hmm. In in the last few minutes, can you speak uh, a little bit to the criteria that will be assessed as part of providing access to the genomic answers for kids uh, data set through phenotypes through the the publicly uh, accessible version?
1: So um, we, The reason um, that there is an extra layer to get access to the data is not because some people will receive access versus others based on, um, you know, who they are, is simply we want to track um, uh, these potential collaborators um, so that we can communicate on potential successful outcomes uh, for these. And also we want to make sure that these are going to, you know, research entities rather than perhaps commercial entities.
0: Certainly makes sense. Um, So thank you, uh, Dr. Cohen, and a big thank you also to our audience for joining us uh, today and for um, all of the great uh, questions. You will receive uh, a link uh, in your browser uh, when this webinar ends, as well as uh, an email uh, that you can uh, answer a brief survey uh, if you missed the link. The email you receive after the webinar will also include a link to the Phenotyp speaker series page where you can sign up to receive alerts on upcoming sessions you can also visit phenotypes.com and go to the resources tabs where the speaker series uh, is available in a drop down menu. All of the installments are available to stream uh, on demand. In addition, uh, the email you receive after this webinar will also include a link to register to our February webinar, which will be taking place on February 8th. The title of that webinar will be Improving Patient Experience in Clinical Genetics. It'll be featuring geneticists and quality improvement innovators such as Dr. Ian Campbell, Dr. Bimal Choudhari, and Dr. Um, if you're interested to learn more about phenotips uh, or collaborate on projects with us, you can send us an email to hello at phenotips.com. Um, looking forward to the next. Day. Take care, everyone. Thank you very much.